0: This morning in our Bible study, we were talking a little bit about death and um, the premise of death. This morning's lesson will be titled The Room of Death. The text this morning is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. We are in studying on Sunday morning in our Bible study at 10 a.m., which we would encourage all to attend. Um, we are studying in Hebrews chapter 11, um, by faith, people, individuals doing various things. Here, our text with this morning will be in Hebrews two fourteen and 15, which I'll get to in a moment. In the early 1900s, there was a famous psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Carl Jung. He developed an intriguing test that psychiatrist and psychiatrist and psychologist will sometimes use to help their patients deal with a specific fear everyone seems to have. They tell their patients to imagine being in a white room filled with white furniture. The walls are white. Your clothes are white. Everything is just white. Then, after a few moments, the patient is asked to describe how they feel about being in that room. What emotions did they experience being in that totally white room? The therapist found that many of their patients would speak of fears of anxiety, fear, even terror, I know the first time my wife and I, a little side note here, we went to Disney World and the, um, oh no, the Grand, the Polynesian, no, the next to the Polynesian is the Grand Floridian. And I remember, you know, we taken, and we like to look at the different resorts. So we were taking the monorail over to Disney World and we stopped at the Grand Floridian. And when we walked in, this was years ago when Disney was Disney, and uh, you know, and all that. Uh, we walked in, and the just the spectacular look of the um, fanciness of the piano, the lobby. Everything looked proper and clean, and you know, and they had white everything. A lot of it was white, white, white. And uh, Megan and Amy were little at the time, and I just remember telling my wife. Let's get out of here before, you know, it's almost like too, too white and too exact for us that, you know, we picture our little girls making, you know, put fingerprints on things and so on. And it was almost like, Oh no, we can't. There's no way we could stay here. Let's, let's get out of here. So that must be the feeling that people have. They're surrounded by white. They have anxiety, even terror sitting in a white room. Then the psychologist explains that the white room represents death. And how the patient felt about that room revealed what they thought about dying. There have been numerous studies over the years asking what people fear. And one of the most prominent fears that folks have is the fear of death. One philosopher said, no man dares to face death without fear. Sigmund Freud said, finally, there is the painful riddle of death, for which no remedy at all has yet been found, nor probably ever will be. An ancient philosopher explained it this way, the the birth of a man is the birth of his sorrow. The longer he lives, the more his anxiety to avoid unavoidable death. What bitterness? He lives for what he always is out of his reach. He lives for something that is always out of his reach. And you think about that. The people today, the fear of death. His thirst, as this philosopher says, his thirst for survival in the future makes him incapable of living in the present our text today now going to hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 tells us that jesus came to help us deal with that fear as christians when we read these two verses it helps us deal with that fear of death hebrews 2:14 and 15 tells us in so much as the children have partaken of flesh and blood he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to its bondage. Or as another version states, since then the children are shearers in flesh and blood, he also himself in like manner partook of the same, that through death... He might bring to naught him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to the bondage of death. We know that Jesus came to free us from bondage, to free us from the fear of death. Now, that doesn't mean that people haven't tried coping with this fear without Jesus. Many people have tried to deal with their fear of death. By simply ignoring it. I was one of those ones as I grew up. That it wasn't a problem. Unless I addressed it. So I ignored it. I remember years ago. My wife and I were sleeping in our house. It was before we had kids. And there was obviously a noise. On the back part of our house. And my wife said. Did you hear that? And I said. Hear what? That bang? And then I realized. <laughs> I was trying to ignore that there was no issue. Hear what? No, I didn't hear that. That noise, I didn't hear that noise that just happened. Because you, you keep it in the car. How many times you get in and it doesn't start or something and in, in, in the light comes on and you're thinking, oh, maybe if I just drive it a little bit, that light will go off. I don't know about you, but I, I've tried that often. My wife finally says, Mark, why don't you do something about it? But there are many of the people that ignore it. I'd like to look at some old sayings I found concerning death. Every man knows that he must die, but no one believes it. Death leaves a heartache that no one can heal. Love leaves a memory that no one can steal. Do not resent growing old. Many are denied that privilege live your own life for you will die your own death. So you got to live your own life because you're going to die your own death. And that makes me think of Jesus when he says, everyone will be accountable on that day of judgment. We are accountable for every man living his own life because we know when it comes time for death that we will, by ourselves, be facing that. In Proverbs 12 and 28, it says, "In the path of righteousness is life. And in its pathway... There is no death. Our Romans 14 and 8 tells us if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. My flesh this is from Psalms, David saying in Psalm 73:26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's a lot more. And we know there's a lot of folks who tend to ignore any discussion of death. They just don't want to talk about it. The reason I'm looking at this was, my mom is 93 now. And my brother and I and my mom, the three of us have been talking, and mom thought, well, you know, it's probably about time that we you know, start you know, looking at redoing or, or finalizing my will and, and all this thing. Um, and so we started looking at, and of course, my, my brother, Joe and I, who jokingly say that mom will probably outlive either one of us, even though we're the executors (laughs) of her estate, but, um, that we started looking at making up wills for ourselves too. My will, I don't know, is it my will, my wife and I looked at our will says, um, it's a little outdated because it says, um, we would divide evenly any of our assets to our children if there are any. No, no. Of course we've we have children that are forty and thirty some and, and and um you know grandchildren and so on. So we said, well we probably should revise that. So I started to look at this and, and today we were talking about in our Bible studies we were studying. You know, these people by faith. And you think about how God brings glory to their name we look at these individuals and i look at these individuals as i say and being here when i'm here and an example of what we have to live by when you read just the book of uh, you know hebrews 11 they talk about the book of faith by faith these individuals did these things and then i look at my life and i ask would god what would god say about my life and we know that's very important because in the book of Revelation, the very last chapter talks about being in the book of life. And John talking about the individuals that are around that throne that are singing praises to God, their names are written in that book of life. And that's one of the things that we strive for in our lives. And that's what I'm encouraging for today. I don't want to have, you know, I don't want this to sound like what I know when you hear first about the the um the room of death. I don't want to sound as a a, a gloom and doom type thing, but as a encouragement to us as Christians. Another approach to deal with the fear of death is to try to postpone death, many say. Believe it or not, there is a fad that was very popular from what I understand about eight years ago in Silicon Valley, out in California. There were individuals who were very rich, They were buying bags of blood plasma to inject into their veins. They wanted this blood transfusion. Because they've got blood that came from young individuals, ages 18 to 25. They were believing, being very wealthy and buying this, that these aging businessmen thought that if they purchased this young blood of young business tech people, that they could live longer. They would extend their lives so they can live as long as they could afford to buy new plasma every once in a while. According to one of these individuals and to a company that is selling this plasma to these rich people, they said the cost For this young blood plasma was $8,000 per bag. A Fox commentary, a commentator named Greg Gutfield commented on this fad saying, I have a theory. These ultra rich billionaires in Silicon Valley got rich really young. So they're in their thirties and now they're billionaires. But the one thing they don't have is immortality. They have everything else. So what goes on in their brain? They think, I'm a billionaire. I don't want to lose all this. And that one day, I'm going to die. They hope to buy eternal life and avoid death. But of course, we know that is impossible. Now, there's another approach that sounds a little more reasonable. There's a clinical therapist from Canada who's speaking about the fear of death and said this, I think the only way you can combat about the fear of death is to live fully. In other words, he believes you can beat the fear, not death itself, but the fear of death by living a productive and fruitful life that you can be proud of. Now, he's not the first guy to come up with that. There's been a lot of people have lived and they determined to live their lives being motivated to do the best that they can by trying to do things that they would live on longer. You want to do things that would live longer than you yourself do. Have your fame go on after you. But they all seem to come up a little empty. No matter how good things are that they may do, it's still hard to deal with the fear of dying. So that's what we look at. We know that a famous philosopher named Jean-Paul Setrer once said that death removes all meaning from life. It's like being in a dungeon and throwing away the key. We look at our text. By Jesus. I'm sure the individuals in the world. I started to think about what Jesus said about you know, many there are that find that broad way. And I started to think, is that really true? How would you look at your community and your, and, and, and the individuals around you? How many attend services? How many would you call true Christians and so on? And I really, it's not that I was being judgmental, but I started to think about my own neighborhood and how many individuals as I'm driving to services this morning that don't even attend services that you know that are home and they do various things on Sunday morning and they think it's just a regular day. started to think about the people I work with, the colleagues and so on that I work with, and how many never really talked about, you know, being a Christian or you really don't have any aspects of that in their life. And I started to think about Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus said, let your light so shine before men. I realized that I need to live my life so that people, without saying, going around, you know, with a sign saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, that by your actions, by the way you speak, the way you act, the people know that you're Christians and that they would draw into you before it is too late. And I look at that and then and that's what I, I ponder this morning as I look at these things. There was a mother taking her two year two young boys to a funeral. She tried to prepare them for what they would experience when they got there. She talked to them for a long period of time about funerals and death and things like that. She thought she'd done a great job until they got to the gravesite. It was obvious that she hadn't explained things as well as she had thought. Her four-year-old leaned over and said, Mom. And she whispers, Yes. And he paused and asked, What's in the box? And that's what I look at this morning. What is in that box? In the book, Children's Letters to God, a little boy named Mike wrote, Dear God, what happens when you die? Nobody will talk to me about it. I don't want to do it, I just want to know. You ask the question, what is in the Bacchus Christians? Sadly, when I attend a funeral, I've been asked to do various funerals. It is easy to do a funeral for a person that's a Christian. We talked this morning about some of the individuals that we knew, and you could see the peace. Even though they were suffering, they had medical issues, they knew they might not get out of it. But the peace and calm they had to their family members as we talked to them. And then, sadly, I have those funerals that I'm not even sure how to, to, to carry out, where you know that the individual was not a Christian. You... Don't want to give any false hope. But yet you don't want to be, you know, just tragic to the family. So, you know, you have those that are tougher. This morning, we look at what Jesus has said. What would we gain? if we? What would we profit if we gain the entire world? But yet you lose our very own soul. What do we give in exchange for our soul? A minister tells of this story. He remembers an event that he happened when he was a child. So he's talking first person here. And he says, when I was five years old, my grandfather died. He was my favorite person in the whole world. And I was his favorite as well. But as five years old, I didn't understand death. I just knew he was gone and he wasn't coming back. In those days, funerals were different than they are today. For example, the viewing was held at my grandpa's house. And the family and friends would come to the house and pass by his casket, which was in the living room. And then I'd gather in the kitchen for refreshments then later we gathered at the cemetery. The grave wasn't covered like it is these days. You would go right up to the grave itself and look right down into the place where the casket was to be lowered. At five years old, I knew that that was where my grandfather's body was going to be buried. My mother said, I spent a great deal of time looking down into that hole. At one point, I looked up at her and I asked the question that only a five-year-old would think to ask. How? is grandpa ever going to get out of there? I didn't understand, he says. I'd never seen anyone die before and it puzzled me. But as a child, my folks had always taken me to a church and thought that I didn't know how I knew. I knew the grave wasn't going to hold him. And although I knew that I just couldn't figure out how God would get grandpa out of that grave with all that dirt on top of him, How could I be sure that Grandpa was going to get out of that grave? And more than that, how can we, as Christians, believe so strongly in the idea of being resurrected from the dead? Well, to answer that question about being resurrected from the dead, we know that it is promised in the Bible. In the Old Testament, for example, There are several verses that tell us not to fear death. I'd like to read a few of those. In the book of Job, chapter 19. In Job 19, verses 25 through 27. I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, He will stand up upon the earth. I'd like to pause right there for a moment. Remember Job, who's writing this. Job had everything taken from him. I cannot picture an individual. I i mean, i it would be tough for me to even say, today, I'm not rich, but to have everything, all my wealth taken from me. Worse than that, to have somebody come to me while I'm standing here and say, by the way, your house just got fire and anybody inside was just killed. Not only that, your both your daughters' houses caught fire, and all of them have perished. So I have no living relatives right now. You know, the immediate family. Job had that happen. All his sons and daughters. He gets a message, and another. And and you, if you read know the story, just as one's giving him news, another one comes in to give him worse news. He didn't even have time, as you say, to wrap his mind around it. And the next person comes in and gives him more news. His wife, who's the companion, and we talk about that, your spouse, curse God and die. That was her response. Here's Job. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I see God. That is what we know we have that others don't have. Those people that don't attend services, their body is just a body to them. When they die, there is no hope of anything else. We know, as Job says, yet in my flesh, I see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. In Hosea 13 and 14, God promised his people, I will ransom them from the power of the grave, I will redeem them from death, O oh, death, I will be your plagues, O oh, grave, I will be your destruction. We all know the twenty third psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Years ago, I was driving my daughters down the road, and as we approached a bridge, like a tunnel, a bridge, they would hold their breath as we passed under the bridge. I asked them why they were doing that, and they said that holding their breath would keep them from dying as they went under the bridge. I thought about that for a moment. Like if I ever went through a caution light, Megan would immediately go and hit the and tap the ceiling of the car. I'm not sure why she did that either. But it made me aware of how many times what she did do was made me aware of how many times I would maybe start to speed up to go through a caution light and she doesn't realize that she it had an impact on my driving maybe that's what she was doing it for. I don't know. Maybe it's a sneaky one like that. Because then she got me, without me saying anything, she got me to slow down and, oh, I cautioned, like, I better slow down and stop instead of speeding up. But anyhow, I thought about this idea of the bridge. And I thought that was acute at that time. But then I read about an individual who was about 19 years old who fainted while holding his breath for some reason. He had been driving through a tunnel, northwest of Portland, Oregon. Or now when I drive to Megan's and anybody that drives the PA Turnpike, there's the big tunnel. If I tried to hold my breath for the length of that, I either have to speed up to about 90 or I'm not I'm just not going to make it. That's a long tunnel. And it sounds like this individual is going through a tunnel like that. And they end up by passing out, drifting across the center line and crashing into a Ford Explorer. Then his car then bounced off in the tunnel walls and collided with a pickup. He ended up being cited for reckless driving, a fourth-degree assault, and three counts of reckless endangerment. Why? Why had he gotten into that accent? Well, because he believed a silly superstition. He was afraid of the darkness of that tunnel that he felt holding his breath it would make him safer if he did it. He feared the shadow of death. But we don't have to be afraid of that shadow because God has promised us that the grave cannot hold us. So the Old Testament is filled with the belief in a resurrection. Then in the New Testament, Jesus adds to these promises in John 5 and 24. In John 5, 24, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Or in John 6 and 40, the gospel of John 6 and 40, it says, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up on that last day. And, of course, one of the most famous scriptures, I think, in the Bible is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And, of course, Revelations asks us to to go a little bit longer than that. Be thou found faithful unto death that you might receive this crown of righteousness. And the answer is, we can believe we will raise from the grave because Jesus did it first. As Revelation 1 and 5. Very beginning of Revelation 1 and 5 says, Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, now granted there had been others raised by the dead in scripture, but each and every one of them died again. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he never went back. He was the first one who ever conquered death. Paul said it this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 14 through 20, Paul says it like this. In Christ, if if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misinterpreting God or misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if, if it is true that the deed, or if it was true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is pointless. And ye are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. For they're not coming back. They have perished. There is no resurrection for them or for us. So we think about that. If in Christ we have Hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The point is this. We don't need to be afraid. Death has no real power over us. Jesus rose from the dead as the firstborn from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What do we read in Romans 6? And I will bring this to a close. Romans 6 tells us that when we were baptized in the Christ, we were baptized with him by baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6, in those first verses, especially verse 4. So when we're baptized, God promises that the grave won't hold us, that we will rise from the dead. At the beginning of the sermon, I told you that the white room test that psychologists and psychiatrists use to gauge the fear of patients, the fear that they have of death, when asked about this. The question is, did the white room have walls, pictures, furniture in it? And they said, well, if you pictured it that way, you picture them all as white. If you picture that, You ask, what kind of emotions do you feel about being in that room for a period of time? I never heard of this test. But the question I would ask is, is there a door? And the psychiatrist would say, yes. And it's white also. And I respond, well, I want to know what's on the other side of that door. That might be the fear. There is a door to this room. It's all white. Would you venture to go out that door? You see, for Christians, death is not a prison from which there is no escape. And the grave is not a box that can never be opened. A poet named Calvin Miller put it this way, Our graves are merely doorways cut into the sod of that lead us to God. We don't have to fear death. My last verse, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 to 58 tells us, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There's a story about a young girl who had to come home each night in the dark, and the shortest way for her to go home was through a cemetery. Someone asked her why she wasn't afraid to pass through this graveyard through the cemetery, and she responded, Oh, I'm not afraid. My home is just on the other side. And I bring that up as an illustration to think about. That is how we should look at death. Jesus has died for us. That we might have that promise to live with God forever. I look at my brother. I look at my dad. My mom someday. As my brother Joe and I say, we might be first, but us someday. And those loved ones that have gone on. I think about people that have attended here that have passed on. The reunion we can have with them when we can say, oh, grave or oh, death, where is your sting? We have that promise that God has set up for us, that our home is not here, that we will pass through that graveyard, as it says in Psalm, the 23rd Psalm. That we will pass through that shadow of that. But we will fear no evil for God, we know, is just on that other side. He is just on that other side. The lesson is yours this morning. If there's anyone here that is in need of being baptized or in needs of the prayers of the congregation, you have an opportunity to make it right as together we stand and sing our song of invitation.